Please turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 38. Last week we labored and attempted to show that all suffering in this life is from the hand of a good God who is for you. There are many reasons that we saw that God uses suffering for our good. We talked about how suffering is used by God to produce endurance in the Christian's faith. We saw that suffering is a means that God uses to expand His kingdom. We saw that suffering reminds us that this world is a vapor and our hope is not in this life, not in this world. And we saw that suffering assures us of our inheritance. And there was a last one that we did not talk about in detail, but we will talk about in detail this morning, that suffering is a means by which God disciplines us when we stray. And so, in all these things, we labored so much last week as, you know, sermon-length introduction to this, because we wanted to make absolutely sure that in everything we're seeing this morning, we're reminded, all suffering is from the hand of a good God who is for you. That must be kept central as we think about the subject of discipline. Because if you lose that, you're going to distort your view of God very quickly. So, this week, we're coming to read Psalm 38. In our outline, three parts, we're going to just look at this psalm to understand the nature of God's discipline. What can we say about God's discipline? And then we're going to say, okay, how do I reconcile that with what we were talking about last week? And how do I fit this with what the rest of the Bible says? And then we're going to see how I might live differently with this understanding. So, please, stand with me as we read God's Word together. Psalm 38. The Psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in Your anger, nor discipline me in Your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I, I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. 
They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Please bow with me. Lord, we pray that You would bless the reading and hearing of Your Word. We pray that You would bless this this attempt to exegete. That You would speak through me for the benefit of Your people. That Your people would be blessed. That Your people would be made more like Christ. That You would be pleased and glorified. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So as we try to wrap our minds around just the subject matter of this psalm as a description of God's discipline, what can we say about it? We can say there's, uh, the way I've outlined it, there's a subject of the affliction. There is a source of the affliction. There is a reason for the affliction. There are kinds of the affliction. And then there's David's response to the affliction. David's response to David's affliction. So, looking at this, at the very beginning, who is the subject of the affliction? And we, we could ask, well, with all this wrathful language, who is crying out? Is it a non-believer that is fearful of God's wrath falling upon them? And I think we're, abs- we're absolutely barred from following that interpretation. This is David. This is David making a memorial offering. I was not clear on what a memorial offering is. I guess older translations use the heading of a, uh, a psalm of David for remembrance. Something, a, a psalm of David for remembrance. So it's unclear as to what the context is. And nobody wants to come down really hard on what the context is. But what I do want to emphasize is it's David, a believer someone in the midst of his life crying out in God in response to affliction and crying out, recognizing, as we will see, the source of the affliction. So if the subject of this affliction is a believer, David, the source of the affliction we can see in the first few verses. Um, The source of the affliction is uh, your wrath, your anger, David says to God. Your, your hand. Your indignation. The source is clear. The affliction is coming from the hand of God to the believer. If we look for a reason for the affliction, we see in verse 3, David says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. And there is no health in my bones. Why? Well, because of my sin. David seems very clear in his own mind what the reason is for this. And the commentators, they, especially when you look at uh, verse 11, stand aloof from my plague, it seems like there is a sickness that's come upon David. And you can see that language with no soundness in my flesh. And there's a lot of language about a physical suffering. But David doesn't chalk this up to, well, that's just bad luck. <laughs> that I'm sick right now. No, he recognizes that we assume there's unrepentant sin in his life, and he makes the connection 
that this affliction is from the good hand of God in response to my sin. This isn't the only place we see language like this. Uh, We see in Amos 3. Amos 3 has very strong language like this, and really a lot of the prophets do. But I think Amos 3 is particularly helpful. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So again, who's the subject? The family that God brought up out of the land of Egypt. God's people. That's the subject. What does He say to the subject? Verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Again, you of all the peoples of the earth I brought to myself. These are His people. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. And then you go to verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Getting to what we were looking at last week. God is utterly sovereign over all things. He never loses control of the steering wheel of life and that's why bad things happen. Everything that happens is by God's decree. He decrees all things whatsoever shall come to pass. And so the affirmation here is there are bad things happening. It's not because God's not in control. It's because He is in control. And it's in response to your sin. So we see there's the subject of the affliction, which is the believer. We see the source of the affliction, which is God. We see there's the reason for the affliction because of my sin and my... and. Uh, because of God's indignation at my sin. We see there are kinds of affliction. And here we can kind of skip around the first section here, but if we look at verse 3 and 5 and 7 especially, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. My sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. This is all bodily, physical affliction. We can see this as one kind of affliction that God might bring to us. One kind of discipline that might come to us. But we see more in verse 4, 6, 8 through 10. Verse 4, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Verse 6, I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. I go, all the day I go about mourning. Verse 8, I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also is gone from me. This is all very emotional language. David's brought to the end of himself in anxiety and despair. And so we can see another kind of affliction. Another kind of discipline. There's bodily, physical. There's emotional, anxiety related. We see verse 11. That my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. Betrayal. Abandonment. This isn't random again when these things happen. Or bad luck. God's sovereign over all things. And so even when friends abandon you, God is sovereign over these things. We see direct persecution from God's enemies. In verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. I don't think we should read these as like, you know, random little 
bits that David's concerned with. I think they all relate to the affliction that he feels like he's receiving from God. Bodily, physical, emotional, anxiety, betrayal, and abandonment, and persecution. All of them are overwhelming him. He's backed into a corner. feels like he's undone. And so how, do, how should we respond to these things? Well, we could ask first, how do we typically respond to these things? And we all know that we don't typically respond favorably to these things. And Job is helpful in many of these things. I, I found words from Job to show how we typically respond in all these things. For physical bodily pain, Satan's words, he speaks a lot of truth when he speaks of Job in chapter 2, verses 4-5. through five, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The devil's the father of lies, but he's not always lying. And many of us, when our bone and our flesh are touched, we react viscerally. We react like Job who does end up accusing God, crying out for justice, feeling like he doesn't have it with God. When we see emotional and anxiety, how do we respond to these things? Job chapter 7, verses 11-16, through 16, he says, Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you guard over me? God. When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. This is us. This is our natural response when we're afflicted in these ways. These words can come very naturally. When we, when we experience betrayal and abandonment. In Job 23, we read, Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat to God. Verse 8, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand he is working, and I do not behold him. He turns to the right, but I do not see him. There's a feeling of, I'm all alone, and you're not with me in my affliction. You must be blind to what's going on because if you saw, things would be different. Maybe he did lose his hands, his grip on the steering wheel of reality. When we see persecution, Job 10, verses 1 through 3, Job says, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? We lash out at anybody who will listen. Sometimes God's the only one listening. So we lash out at Him. Do you see? Do you care at all? Because you say you're a loving God. You say you're for me. This doesn't feel like you're for me. If you were for me, something different would be happening. Either you're not in control or you don't love me. And we know from everything we've labored to show last week, that's not true. 
We must cling to the biblical truths that God is sovereign over all things and that He loves His people dearly and He works all things for the good of those who love Him and He is for them. So we know that all these responses that come so naturally to us and are poetically articulated by Job, they're not faithful responses. What is David's response to the affliction? Starting in verse 13, we see silence. I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. Where Job sinned in his many words against God. And, you know, as we're doing our yearly Bible reading, we think, yeah, there, there are many words here. It can be difficult to get through the many words. But David shows wisdom in closing his mouth. And we, we can think of Christ, can't we? When he was brought to the cross, when he was afflicted by the Roman soldiers, he opened not his mouth except to utter blessing. Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. He didn't answer their accusations. He didn't get into a debate. He didn't say anything. He let it go. And we see wisdom there in Christ, and we see wisdom in David. This is a humble acceptance of God's providence. Not in arguing with God, not in arguing with whoever will listen, but a humble acceptance. What else do we see? We see David waiting verses 15 through 16, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. Part of the humble acceptance of God's providence is embracing the reality that God must be the deliverer. Our trials are greater than we can bear on our own. And if we see all these kinds of discipline, we're immediately confronted with, yeah, these are things are greater than I can bear. If the physical pain is great enough, I can't even bear that on my own. Then you throw emotional and anxiety, and then you throw on betrayal and abandonment, and you throw on persecution. We're powerless, utterly defenseless against all these things. If there's going to be deliverance, it has to come from above. I can't do it. I can't deliver myself. So we wait. We wait on the Lord. And then we find, especially in the context of discipline, in response to sin, there must be confession. Which David gives fully at the end of the psalm. David says in verse 17, For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. And then he cries out for help in response to this confession. We see that David confesses his own weakness in verse 17. We see that David confesses his sin in verse 18. We see that David confesses in verse 19 the great strength and power of those who oppress him, greater than his power. We see in verse 20 a confession of the injustice of the persecution and a confession with resolve to do what the Lord says is good. And all these are good. All these are faithful responses that we strive to have on our lips rather than the words of Job. We see finally, just a final desperate cry for deliverance in verses 21 through 22. It all culminates in what's said is said, all I can do is cry out, help me. Deliver me. Do not forsake me, 
O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. And so we see a theology of the discipline of the Lord in this psalm. We see, again, subject, the source, reason, the kinds, the response. Now, wrestling again with how can we understand, this is heavy stuff that we're seeing in this psalm. Understanding this is from the hand of a Father, of a God who is for you and loves you. So, what can we understand about God's discipline? Sometimes it's easier to say what we're not saying. So, what we're not saying is that when we get discipline, it's a tit for tat, you get what you deserve. Because we know we do not get what we deserve. We are treated so much better than we deserve. Even in the worst days, we're not getting what we deserve. So even the heaviest of God's discipline and affliction of us, it's not a tit for tat, you did this, so that. God overlooks so many of our sins, more than we could count, more than we could ever understand. And so, His discipline is not we're getting everything we deserve. It is not God looking for any reason, just looking for a reason to hurt us which this is problematic in so many ways because you think I'm doing okay and I'm doing good and I'm following God's law rightly, which means I'm owed an easy life and then something bad happens. Well, I must have sinned to deserve this. You never deserve (laughs) ease. And we're never following God's law in a way that we should expect an easy life. So this whole way of thinking is flawed from the very beginning. And then, of course, it comes from a flawed view of God's character, thinking that fundamentally what gets him up in the morning, so to speak, is eagerness to hurt his children. Or rather, we should say it's the opposite. That God is love, as the New Testament says. And we must interpret all that we're seeing through that lens. And along those lines, we would say that it cannot mean that God delights in hurting His children like He's eager and happy to do so. We understand this from Romans 8.31 as we labored last week that God is for us. Who can be against us? So to understand how discipline is for us, I don't think there's a much better text to turn to than Hebrews 12. And we're going to start in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that God addresses you as sons? This is quotation from Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what are we seeing here? If we want to itemize the reasons for God's discipline, we see it produces endurance. We see it produces respect for the Father. It produce, it, um, even though it's painful in the moment, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. And most importantly, when we suffer affliction again, we think this is a... This is evidence that we are enemies of God and we don't belong to Him. But the exact opposite is true. Why does He discipline us? Because He's treating us like sons. In other words, we're being disciplined because we belong to Him. The discipline is no reason, it's no threat to the hope I have in Christ. The discipline is no evidence that I don't belong to Him. It is in fact evidence that I do belong to Him. And I think of an illustration, just if I see one of your kids acting up, I'm not going to pull them in a room and discipline them myself. Why? They're not my kids. You discipline them. Why? Because they are your kids. And your discipline is not saying to your kids, you're not my child, and I'm to be hyperbolic. You're not my child, and I'm going to beat on you and tell you you're not my child. But you are my child, and this is why we are going to do this discipline, whatever it is, because you are mine, and I love you, and this is for you. And it's the same with God. The discipline that comes our way is to be perceived as no threat to our status as belonging to Him. It is to be seen as evidence of being with Him. So we can say with Job, in his better moment, though He slay me, I will hope in Him. How can you possibly say that if you think that all the suffering proves that you don't belong to God? You can only say that if in the slaying it doesn't change that I do belong to Him. That's the only way I can say, though He slay me, yet I will hope in Him. Because the affliction is no threat to the promises of God. Psalm 119, I just want to highlight some of the beautiful texts we went through this morning in our call to worship. We see in Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. God disciplined the psalmist. And now, he's in a better position. He's more sanctified. He better understands God's law. He's in a better place to obey. We see in Psalm 71, he even celebrates the discipline. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. We don't say that of our own flesh. All discipline for the time seems painful rather than pleasant. And yet it is from a sanctified heart, one who's been bought by the blood of Christ, by the power of the Spirit that can say, it was good that I was afflicted. Even if I don't understand it, even if I still don't understand it, even if I don't necessarily know the reasons why, 
but I know it's from the good hand of God, and therefore it is good that I would afflict them. And again, to highlight verse 50, when we are in discipline, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Again, it's no threat to my status in God. I still have God's promises, even in my affliction, even in my discipline, even in God's fatherly displeasure. I have his promises. They're not going anywhere. And I'm his son and belong to him. So God's discipline being from the hand of a good God who is for us reminds us of several realities. Discipline is not vengeance. Discipline is not violent release. It is not rage. And most importantly, it is not rejection. But it is what we see in Psalm 23. Um, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff sometimes poke and prod painfully. But the shepherd loves his sheep and is directing them for their good. And so from a proper perspective, they are comforted. Because I'm not abandoned in the valley of the shadow of death where I'm helpless and defenseless, where I'm missing shepherds. And he's going to bring me home safely. So how can we live considering God's discipline? I think there's... uh, Multiple things to, to uh, say at this point. One, we do want to be very careful about interpreting God's providence, especially in the moment. Because it's rarely clear in the moment why suffering is occurring. Usually, if we do understand it, it's with hindsight. And we can see long after the fact, okay, that's what God was doing. Sometimes we still can't see it even in our hindsight. But we know discipline is not the only reason for suffering. We see it produces endurance. We see it's a means that God uses to expand His kingdom. Remember with what we saw last week, Ezekiel. God, was told, God told Ezekiel that I will take your wife from you. And there was no evidence that this was disciplinary. There's no evidence that God is saying, because you sinned in this way, I'm going to take your wife away. It was totally and completely for the ministry. And as hard as that is, it's a different kind of suffering. And if Ezekiel would have interpreted that as God is just lashing out at me angry because I did something wrong, he would have interpreted it wrongly. Suffering reminds us that this world is a vapor and suffering assures us of our inheritance. All these things are possible reasons that the Bible gives for our suffering. And so in the moment, we don't want to assume that all discipline, I need to go navel-gazing and make sure that there's not some unconfessed sin that this has caused. Because it's unhealthy. We're not taught to think that way. We're not taught to live life that way. But, if you are aware of unrepentant sin and suffering comes into your life, I can't promise you that it's there for your discipline, but I can promise you this. It is a good reminder to repent. And it's a good opportunity to repent.
We can think of this. There are a few families in this congregation, in my conversations with you, you've been very diligent in modeling uh, your view of your own discipline of your children in response to God's discipline for us. And there's valuable insights here for parents. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How often is discipline done out of anger? Out of, man, you're just annoying me today. <laughs> and you're going to get it. We, we do things inconsistently. We do things according to the mood of the moment. And there's a great lesson here that God is not like that with us. And so if we understand that all suffering is from the hand of a good God who is for us, including our discipline, when our children are disciplined, we must strive by God's grace to have the same mind. I'm not doing this for me because I'm mad or annoyed or trying to get to something else. I'm doing this for you. And in all of this, I'm doing this because I love you and I want you to grow. And I want you to grow in discipline and faithfulness. When we consider children here this morning, your parents are sinners. They will mess this up. But I know all your parents. And I know they are for you. And so it's a good reminder for you as you experience discipline from your parents. They love you. And you, it's a good reminder here this morning not to hate them when discipline comes, not to rebel, but to trust and humbly accept the discipline that is for your good. We see in Ephesians 6, 1-3, through 3, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Most importantly, most beautifully, we consider Christ in relation to all that we've discussed this morning. When we come to the end of the psalm, we see David's guttural cry, so to speak. All things have been said. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. And as David cries out, he cries out of desperation, knowing nothing else can be said, nothing else can be done. There is no deliverance anywhere else. I must have it from God. And we know that in Christ, we do have deliverance. As we acknowledge our own powerlessness, our own weakness, our own utter lack of ability. We know we must go to Christ and Christ alone. And in Christ, He did make haste to help us in our affliction. He is the God of our salvation. In fact, Matthew one twenty one, She will bear a son and you will call His name Jesus. Why? For He will save His people from their sins. He's literally taken the name of Savior to Himself and came at the proper time to save His people. And so we understand, yes, all the corrective discipline that we receive in this life, all the corrective suffering we receive in this life is from the hand of a loving, good Father. But that 
also means is that it is not from the hand of a wrathful king against treasonous rebels. Because we are not treasonous rebels. We are sons brought into the family. Why is this distinction made? Why is there a distinction between those whom God treats as sons and those whom God treats as enemies and wicked rebels? Because of Christ. And we consider that Christ took on the punishment for our sins so that we are no longer treasonous rebels. We are brought into the family of God. We are given promises that cannot be touched. We consider how Christ was treated. He was the subject of God's affliction. For Christ, the source of his affliction was not necessarily the Romans, was not necessarily the Jews. It was the Father. It was God. The same source of our affliction. Christ experienced his anger, his wrath, his arrows, his hand, his indignation to the fullest. We see the kinds of affliction that Christ experienced. He was crucified. One of the most excruciating bodily sufferings that man has devised. He was sapped and drained as he was afflicted in his emotional and in his anxiety. He was betrayed and abandoned. Betrayed by his disciples and in a sense abandoned by God. And he was certainly suffering from the hands of God's enemies in persecution. But what was the reasons for, for Christ's affliction? Psalm 38.3 reads, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. That's true of Christ. But there is no health in my bones because of my sin. That is not true of Christ. He didn't suffer the fullness of God's affliction for His sins. He suffered for mine and for yours. And this is why we have grounds to cry out with David. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. And we know that in Christ, He has. If you know Him. And if you don't know Him, we know that He will. If you cry out to Him, be the God of your salvation. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, help us in our weakness. We are prone like Job to cry out bitterly. We are prone to lash out at any within the sound of our voice. We're prone to lash out at You. Lord, help us to be like David and like Christ. To humbly accept Your providence trusting You that it is for our good, repenting of known sins, and crying out for deliverance. Lord, we love You and praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. Our brothers, come forward uh, for our communion.